Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. We need to learn to take God at his word. Sounds easy enough, especially when it's smooth sailing. But in the midst of a storm, even the disciples of Jesus needed a reminder. On one occasion, he told them, let us go over to the other side. They did. En route to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, however, their boat encountered a furious squall. The sky opened and buckets of water fell and waves threatened to overturn the boat. The disciples turned to Jesus and found him sound asleep. They screamed, don't you care if we drown? Jesus woke up, stood up, commanded the storm to shut up, and then said to the disciples, Do you still have no faith? What a stunning rebuke. The sea was raging, the water was churning. Why did Jesus scold them? Simple. They didn't take him at his word. He said they were going to the other side. He didn't say, We are going to the middle of the lake to drown. Jesus had declared the outcome. But when the storm came, the disciples heard the roar of the winds and forgot his word. Storms are coming your way. Winds will howl, your boat will be tossed, and you will have a choice. Will you hear Christ or the crisis? Heed the promises of Scripture or the noise of the storm? Will you take God at his word? We're here in the Archbishop's Corner, where Archbishop Leonard Blair of Hartford will help us be strong in faith and encourage us to take God at his word. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you today? Very well, thank you. I'm always uh, amused at your saying that people are invited into my space. What exactly is my space? Your corner of the world, the Archbishop's oh. Corner. You know how this got started, by the way? No. Because, um, well, a long time ago, in a previous archbishop, who used to do a program called the Bishop's Corner, because in West Hartford there is Bishop's Corner. And yeah, so it's it was a shopping a, mall. Yes, it, it was kind of a takeoff on that. And so then it was called the Archbishop's Corner, and, and that's how this program developed. It wasn't always this particular format. It used to be a five-minute program, and when you came into the Archdiocese, you and I thought it would be nice to have a question-and-answer program similar to what we do now, and that's how it developed into a half-hour program. Well, I'm glad we're not in England where they have quirky names for pubs like <laughs> the Bishop's Nose or, or the Bishop's Knee or something. That might be a little awkward to have for a program. So in any case, we celebrate the Archbishop's Corner. Okay. By the way, there was a modification of the safety practices regarding COVID-19 that you put into place this past week. Do you want to say something about that? Well, as the situation evolves, what we uh, sent out to the pastors is not uh, huge. Well, I suppose in some ways you could say it is, but uh, namely that uh, in light of uh, the scientific background and the governor, people who are vaccinated need not wear a mask, a mask at mass. However, I, uh, we're, this is something of an honor system because if you're not vaccinated, you uh, really should continue to wear a mask. For the clergy or anyone assisting in the distribution of communion, I have said that we will continue to wear masks for that. I mean, the person who's distributing communion and, you know, the hand sanitizer just to be extra cautious uh, about this. And uh, also, I've sent something out uh, to the pastors afterward, uh, saying because I heard from some of them, saying if you think it is uh, 
advisable uh, upon people's request or concern. Individual pastors, if they want to make a section of the church, a part of the church, for masks only or even spacing, uh, I said, you're free to do that. Because there are still a significant number of people who have concerns, and we certainly want to uh, provide for them. You know, sadly, our churches these days are, are hardly ever full. So if, if a priest did, a uh, pastor did designate a section of pews, masks only, in that section, it wouldn't take away from, you know, uh, space for other people who want to come. Mm-hmm. So I think the pastors will have to exercise some discretion, and we have to respect other people. You know, I'm particularly concerned their families with children. Children are not vaccinated yet. They, are, you know, wonder about bringing their children to Mass. So if they would have a section, if, if that is asked of the pastor, I can see him him providing that. I don't understand, quite honestly, the attitude of people who who actually resent that other people would wear a mask. Somebody told me the other day that they were in some venue, I forgot what, it must have been a store or a shop, and the people who were in there happened to all be wearing masks, and some woman walked in and in a loud voice said, why are you all wearing masks? Mm. And I think to myself, what is her problem, you know, if somebody else wants to wear a mask, if she's free not to these days, I guess, but it shows the tensions that all of this has created and the anxieties in people. And And so we always want to calm the situation, you know, you don't want to argue with other people or whatever, but I think we have to be respectful of one another and try to make accommodation for people. And there are many people who, while they have been vaccinated already, are still a little bit concerned and maybe fearful, and they're still wearing masks. But that's up to them. And, you know, it's not the, even with the vaccine, like any vaccine, it's 90-some percent effective, but it's not 100 percent effective. And some people might, you know, they just might have that fear. If they want to wear a mask, that's fine with me. Sure. Well, tomorrow is the 14th of June, and that means it's Flag Day. It honors the date in 1777 on which the Continental Congress adopted the Stars and Stripes as the country's official flag. And in addition to Flag Day, tomorrow is also Pause for the Pledge Day. At 7 p.m., Americans across the nation will collectively recite the Pledge of Allegiance as a part of National Flag Day ceremonies. The Pause for the Pledge of Allegiance was conceived as a way for all citizens to share a patriotic moment. What are your thoughts, Archbishop, regarding Flag Day and about the ongoing debate to remove under God from the pledge? It's all a sign of our times, isn't it? But Mm -hmm. I guess, um, you know, we really are living in a very challenging uh, time. I think we have to proceed with a great deal of thought and prudence and public engagement. And by that, I mean that, you know, a country is held together by its collective memory and experience and loyalties. And today, those are being severely uh, attacked by people who, more than just trying to clarify the historical record or set things in perspective or or undo unjust situations, past or present. I'm not talking about that. So in other words, we don't just bless everything that's ever happened in the United States or the way things have been and say it's perfectly good, because we live in a sinful world where there's good and bad. But to overthrow a whole understanding of the foundations of the country and what people have done, uh, you know, that is good. Um, I, I think we, we ought to be very careful about that because it can literally destroy a country. It really can. You know, it's remarkable that the United States uh, is as united as it has been, although, of course, we know the Civil War was a hugely bloody wound that took place precisely because of uh, uh, the questions of slavery 
and of secession and all that. So I suppose in a sense, those kinds of things can still haunt us. But I think we have to find a way forward that legitimately honors the past and, and, and speaks the truth about it without trying to um, vilify all of history or to discredit everything because of past wrongs. And it takes a lot of wisdom to be able to, to find that uh, the right path. But I think, uh, you know, um, when things become an ideology, uh, then that's very dangerous. And, and I think I see that happening in our country today, and it's very worrisome to me. You know, how, how is our country going to stay united as one people, and how are we going to, because people has to have a history. And is it going to be ideological on either side, by the way, not, I'm not, but on either side, is it going to be ideological or is it going to be honest, but also respectful and understanding things in their context? Most things that happen in history, including the things that happen today, are not purely good or or purely evil. There's, (laughs) we live in that kind of, of world, you know. So we have to take all of that into account and in how we retell our history and how we understand it and what the values are that we're promoting. Uh, but I, I really w- worry about our young people today. The, um, the kind of ideological battle that's taking place, for example, in higher education and some of our universities, you know. Um, there was an interesting article this week written by the editor of First Things, uh, a journal, uh, a religious journal, and he said he doesn't want to hire people uh, from some of the big Ivy League universities anymore because they bring to the job uh, all this preoccupation with um, ideological things. Uh, he said they fight about uh, and worry about uh, pronouns, uh, you know, with all this mm-hmm. gender ideology, and they, 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 they're carrying on about all kinds of things. And now, again, I say this with some caution because there are legitimate concerns that, that have to be addressed in our country. But when it becomes ideology... This is not not helpful. I mean, it's been said, and I think it's true, that a lot of uh, students in university today keep their heads down and don't say anything when they're sub- subjected sometimes to uh, harangues or, or, or uh, ide- purely ideological things uh, that, I, uh, you know, they don't speak up. But that's dangerous for people not to speak their mind or, be, or feel free to speak in complex issues where there are two legitimate sides to a story. Uh, then you have to be open to that. And I'm afraid the door is closing on that in a lot of ways. You know, today we're hearing about books being banned uh, on uh, uh, on the web and, and for purchase by these uh, people who control this th- these kinds of things. And, you know, I know there was, um, uh, 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 well, you can still buy Hitler's Mein Kampf online, but I remember reading a story that books that are meant to give counseling uh, to persons with a homosexual inclination to help them live a chaste life we're being banned from being sold. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that we have to worry about. I even think, you know, according to some of the ideology now going around, the catechism of the Catholic Church would be banned from the Internet. And so would uh, the teachings of the of the Catholic Church. So would the Bible. You know, the New Testament would be banned uh, for, uh, I suppose, sexism and uh, for acknowledging at the time that there was slavery. Uh, those kinds of things. So we have to be very, very careful. And I think this is the kind of thing that's in some ways overtaking our society. And I, I hope this that we will strike the right balance before uh, not too long. Thank you for those comments, Archbishop. Let's look at Tuesday's observance of World Elder Abuse Awareness Day. 
It's a day for the whole world to voice its opposition to the abuse and suffering inflicted on some of our older citizens. Elder abuse is a global social issue that affects the health and the human rights of millions of older persons around the world. The church has taken major steps to protect the young against sexual abuse. Have we taken steps against elder abuse as well, Archbishop? Well, I suppose I I do remember uh, in his later years when he was really getting up in age, Pope St. John Paul wrote a letter to the elderly talking, I think, about his own experience and own situation and offering them encouragement. And uh, I would say certainly uh, through the many, many Catholic health and social welfare uh, organizations that we have, I have no doubt that part of uh, their mission and part of what we try to do is uh, to promote the the well-being of the elderly and certainly to try to uh, keep them from any kind of uh, abuse. You know, at the same time, we realize that uh, in the sinful world, all kinds of things happen. And so we always have to be vigilant that we ourselves practice what we preach and that we maintain the very highest standards. Let's take a look now at our gospel reading on this 11th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Our gospel is taken from Mark, the fourth chapter, and uh, this gospel account is dramatically presented now, and after which we'll ask you, Archbishop, what your thoughts are. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed upon the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He knows not how. The earth produces of itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. What inspiring thoughts do you have for us on our gospel for today, Archbishop? Well, it's for others to say they're inspiring, but I hope that they'll be helpful. I, I guess, you know, it's a very consoling parable, isn't it? that the kingdom of God is like seed scattered. Uh, And it's a mystery. Of course, science unlocks for us the scientific explanation of how things can grow, sprout and grow out of seed. But nevertheless, uh, to to just the observer, you know, it's still a marvelous thing to watch a, a seed be planted and sprout and grow and produce grain or whatever. Uh, and it's consoling to know that ultimately the kingdom of God is not a bureaucracy, a bureaucratic act. It's not a organizational or programmatic function, but it is a mystery. And we have the job to scatter the seed. And the way we scatter the seed is by uh, what we say and by what we do as believers, as followers in Christ. And that's not just for the church institutionally or even on a parish level. It's for each and every baptized person. you, by what you say and do, you are spreading the seed of God's word and faith. And you have to allow it to grow in yourself because you can poison it within yourself. You know, Jesus tells other parables about how, how uh, the seed falls on different kind of soil and a lot of it doesn't make it. So we have to want to be the kind of ground where we can bear fruit and we in turn then uh, can spread this to, to still others. 
And then what about the mustard seed? Because the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, but once sown becomes the largest of plants. How is this like the kingdom of God? Well, I think it's just a further specification of the fact that the seed is, is tiny, that it appears to be tiny. It's filled with the power of God, but it's tiny. And so it's a, a you know, growth. It has the potential. It has the potential for, for great growth. I remember that saying of Cardinal St. John Henry Newman that the only infallible sign of life is growth. Anything that lives has to be growing in some way, you know. I mean, even if you're elderly, your, soul, your, your, your cells are still, uh, you know, growing. You, you, you don't, you, you, we don't become st- entirely static. Life is always a dynamic uh, process in whatever stage. And so, uh, so, so it is with the, with, the, with the church. Growth. Now, that growth doesn't necessarily mean institutionally or geographically, uh, although we hope that it would be, but it is about giving the fruits of repentance and faith and hope and love in people's lives. Mark goes on to say that with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to understand it. Without parable, he did not speak to them. And then to his own disciples, he explained everything in private. What is Mark getting at here, especially when he says, without parable, he did not speak to them? So everything that he said to them was in parable form. That's right, because the mysteries of the kingdom of God have to be, uh, how should we say, they... Let's, let, let me give you a modern example. If I hand somebody the full edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church and say, this is what you should believe, and walk away, well, I, you might succeed, you know, it could be fruitful, but more than likely, uh, that book would either be only read the first couple pages or it might never be even looked at. But if you start to invite people uh, by engaging their imagination and engaging their experience and 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 then leading them uh, to uh, uh, the truths of the faith, the gospel, well, you're much more likely to succeed, are you not? And sure. that is exactly what our Lord is doing here. He's people are moved and curious and their their curiosity is aroused by these parables, you know, these stories. Um, I mean, what is the gospel? It's a story, but it's not a, sto- a fictional story. It's a it's a, a true story, but you know what the gospel teaches. What we read in, in the scripture is not some treatise on on God or some uh, treatise on theology. It is the living Christ who continues to speak to us through these very things that are recorded there, that are stories about His ministry and His teaching. Before we get to some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. Let me ask you about this, because on last Monday, Pope Francis met with a group of young French priests who are pursuing studies in Rome, and he spoke to them about their future pastoral work. Recalling a favorite image of a pastor, Pope Francis urged these priests to be shepherds with the smell of the sheep grounded in the situation of their flock. He said pastors should be people capable of living, of laughing, and crying with your people. Priesthood isolated from the people of God is neither a Catholic priesthood nor a Christian one. Do you want to comment on that? Well, I think that's uh, a th- vivid theme that the Pope has used before, but it's, it, I don't want to say it's self-evident because maybe t- to some priests it's not self-evident or to the people, sadly. But uh, obviously we're not ordained uh, for ourselves. We're ordained for the service. And if we are to be sheep, or excuse me, if we're to be pastors 
after the heart and mind of Christ, well, then we we have to be there uh, when the wolf comes to keep him away. That's a big job these days. It always has been, I suppose. And we have to also feed, nurture, and protect the sheep and bring them together. Pope Francis went on to say that with Christ, these priests can be apostles of joy and be grateful for serving their brothers and sisters in the church. This joy should be accompanied by a sense of humor. A priest who does not have a sense of humor is not liked. Something is wrong. A sense of humor is one of the characteristics of holiness, the Pope said. There's a lot of advice there, Archbishop, for the kind of priest Pope Francis wants to see in the church today. Your thoughts? Well, again, without taking anything away from Pope Francis, it's the kind of priest that we've always wanted in the church, I think. I mean, I can think, you know, how I often talk about St. Philip Neri as known as the Apostle of Joy in, in the Rome of his day. Uh, you know, that uh, most saints have exhibited, now there's some that are very austere, I suppose, in a monastic life or something, but um, no, uh, having a, a, a joyful uh, approach to things uh, or radiating a certain joy, but that's not just true of priests. Uh, what you know, we talk about everybody being uh, responsible for bearing witness to the gospel in their daily life. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if you're if you're a parish secretary, for example, uh, what joy do you radiate uh, to the people who come to the door on the phone? If you're a Catholic school teacher, uh, what joy of the gospel do you radiate to your students and their families? Uh, if you're in public life, no matter what it is. Uh, you have to, um, a joyful person, uh, Jesus said, you know, that he, he, not as the world gives do I give uh, this uh, uh, joy to you. Uh, and I think that, that that's always true. I think if you were to ask most people to list the various characteristics of holiness, many people would not say, would not mention a sense of humor as one of those characteristics of holiness. This pope has said that. Well, yes, but I mean, I think uh, obviously there's a depth to this too, you know. Joy and sense of humor complement one another, but they're not exactly the same thing, you know. I can imagine, uh, you know, uh, a cloistered sister living in a very, you know, uh, a confined life. They, that's not the word that a cloistered sister would use. It's a, it's an enclosed life, you know, it's a life of prayer. A Being life a very of joyful, silence. Silence is part of yes, their rule. Yes, much silence. Being a very joyful person, and you know, it's not that the cloister is not without joy or laughter, but that's not necessarily the same kind of humor that you might have, you know, for someone out in the world. One of my experiences has been with the poor Clares, especially the poor Clares in Assisi, and I found the the, the poor Clares to be one of the most joyful, prayerful communities and and humor-filled communities. They find joy in everything that they do. It's what Pope Francis says, the joy of the gospel. Exactly. Let's look at another question that comes to us from Judy from Torrington. Judy says, why does a baptized adult have to go through the rite of Christian initiation of adults if they already know almost everything about the Catholic religion? Well, Judy, I'm not quite sure I understand your question. If, If you're already a baptized adult, why would you go through the rite of Christian initiation of adults? Unless, I think what this could mean is if somebody was baptized in another church, validly baptized as a Lutheran, let's say, and then they're becoming Catholic, they're asked to go through the rite of Christian initiation. Um, But uh, otherwise, I'm not quite sure. Although you do say if they already know almost everything about the Catholic religion, I'm afraid I'd have to know more to answer your question correctly. How many adults have you ever met that know almost everything about the Catholic religion, period, Archbishop? 
Well, I don't think I even know almost everything. Uh, I can't say that I do. Brian from Prospect says, Will all people that died before Jesus' crucifixion have the opportunity to go to heaven even if they did not know God? Well, Brian, we have to leave that in God's good hands. But you know, uh, the scriptures speak about uh, Christ's death and the, those, uh, the righteous from before uh, being touched by this. This is part of what we mean when we, in the creed, we say he descended into hell which is not meant to be necessarily the punishing hell that we understand uh, today, but rather the, the realm of the dead, the underworld, that Christ in his resurrection opened the gates of the underworld. So, yes, uh, Christ's uh, saving death is retroactive in a certain sense as it is uh, moving forward. Teresa from East Hartford says, If someone becomes a Catholic as an adult, why are godparents necessary? When did the godparent tradition begin? Well, really, it has to do with the sponsorship, you know, that you're, you're being initiated not just as a, a private individual or a lone individual. You're being, uh, you're being initiated or received into a community. And so uh, the idea of godparents or sponsors has to do with that communal aspect. And it doesn't mean the same thing, perhaps, for an infant as it would for an adult, but it is a part of that tradition. And Kevin from Seymour says, I have been invited to two outdoor weddings this summer for Catholic couples. Is it ever acceptable for a Catholic to have a mass or a wedding outside? Well, Kevin, this uh, is evolving somewhat, and it also has to do with, the, uh, with COVID. Um, the, the, you know, we have always insisted that uh, a, a wedding between uh, a sacramental wedding uh, should take place in a parish church because it is sacramental, it's tied, it's not just a private act, it's tied to the life of the bride uh, or groom's parish, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, in today's situation, where so much of that has broken down, uh, there, are, there are times when uh, we, I will give permission for a wedding to take place outside of a parish church, even between two Catholics, especially because of COVID or other circumstances. But the expectation is still normally that uh, you know, two Catholics, for example, uh, would get mar married with Mass, and uh, Mass should take place in a church. So I think it just maybe the outdoor weddings that you attended for Catholics, there might be there are probably some aspects of it that uh, suggested the reason why it would be better to do it uh, uh, outside of a church building or even Mass. Bill from Waterbury says recreational marijuana legalization was rushed through in a legislative session in Connecticut this week. Why are you in support of or in opposition to this bill? Well, Bill, as we're pre-recording the show, even as we speak, uh, the Connecticut legislature is taking up this matter at, as they wind down their session for the, for the year, and it remains to be seen. The latest reports are that it's not at all assured that it will be passed. Now, I will say that, you know, uh, legalization of marijuana is not a Catholic doctrinal issue. It does have to do, though, with the church's uh, desire to uh, promote the good of human persons, uh, their health and well-being, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was asked if I would be supportive with some Protestant ministers, including ministers uh, from the black and Hispanic communities, who in their particular situation are very, very concerned about what this will do uh, and are, are absolutely convinced from past experience that uh, 
it will it will create situations even of illegality, even if marijuana is legalized, uh, that will that will be very injurious to people. So I w- I was happy to to join them, and it got some attention of opposing the legalization of marijuana in Connecticut. Um, you know, I remember reading, and I mentioned this when we had that interview, that you know in Colorado there were babies being born with marijuana in their systems, and when the mothers were told this, the mothers said, well, what's the problem? It's legal, isn't it? Of course, the doctors weren't quite as uh, diffident about this. And I think that's the problem, you know, Catholic or, or any kind of person, you're free to be in, uh, in favor or opposition. It's not uh, some uh, church teaching that you have to be opposed to recreational marijuana. But I do think our faith obliges us to ask some hard questions if this is really for the common good, if it's really uh, furthering the health and well-being of people or not. Personally, I don't think it it does. But uh, so we'll have to see, though, what what is determined. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together this morning. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord God, as we enter further into uh, the warm season of summer uh, upon us, we pray that uh, after all the many uh, stresses and trials and dangers of COVID, that we may be reunited uh, with one another in a way that is safe and healthy and one that promotes our emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being. Uh, we ask your blessing on those who are still suffering from COVID or threatened by it in a, in a grave way in many parts of the world. And we ask you uh, to uh, bless us as we strive to do your holy will every day. And may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week. In the meantime, enjoy this week, and let's hope for nice weather. You too. Thank you.